Last week, we began a series, new series entitled, I Wish Jesus Hadn't Said That. And so if you're new this morning, you came in at a great time. Um, this series is based on the premise that if, if what Christians celebrated a couple weeks ago on Easter Sunday is true, if, if Jesus did indeed make a spectacle of Satan, of hell, of the grave, if he really is the risen king of the universe, then he can say whatever he wants. Um, now, the, the reality of it is, is if we're honest, um, that's hard for a lot of us to swallow because we like Jesus, the good teacher. Um, we like Jesus, the moral philosopher. We like Jesus's fortune cookie statements, those things that Jesus said that if you were to go to chopsticks and crack open a fortune cookie, you might actually find um, statements like, judge not that you be not judged. If you showed up at chopsticks, cracked open a fortune cookie and saw that phrase, you would go, yes. I'm not gonna judge people today. Thank you, fortune cookie, for that statement to make my day a little bit better so that I can treat others kindly. Or how about this one? Ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. How many people who have just completely hit a roadblock in life would go, yes, thank you, God, I needed to hear that today. That is so wonderful. I will live that out as if it is absolutely true. Or maybe this one. Do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Um, let the day uh, worry about its own troubles, essentially. Um, if we heard that and we were going through uh, great levels of anxiety about things in our lives, we would respond well to a statement like that, right? We love Jesus the philosopher. We love uh, the Jesus that throws out fortune cookie one-liners to the masses. Um, but the reality of it is, if Jesus is more than a good teacher, if he really is the risen king of the universe, then you and I have to lay down our weapons, namely our Sharpies that we use to strike out parts of the Bible that we don't like. No longer is the Bible just another book that we can take and kind of uh, pick it apart, piecemeal the things that we like, and discard the, re the rest. So the question is, is it possible that Jesus was nothing more than a good teacher, nothing more than a moral philosopher? Is that a possibility for us? And so last week I shared a C.S. Lewis, uh, Lewis quote for you from his uh, great work entitled Mere Christianity, um, a quote that I find to be very helpful in answering that question. And so if you were here, this is a little bit of a reiteration, but if you weren't, uh, then you get to hear it for the first time possibly. Lewis says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish things that people often say about him, about Jesus. I am ready to accept Jesus, people say, as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say, Lewis says. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, of all the examples that he could have chosen, I don't know why poached egg, but we'll go with it, or else he would have been the devil of hell. Right? This, this good teacher claimed to be able to forgive people's sins, Matthew chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. This good teacher claimed to be able to grant eternal life. John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28. This good teacher claimed that if you've seen him, you've seen God the Father. John chapter 14, verse 9. And if we want to get great clarity, uh, very simplistically, John 10, 33 says this. The Jews answered him, it is, not, uh, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man make yourself God that Jesus never left this possibility open to us. Lewis goes on to say, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. And he finishes out the quote by saying this. But let us not, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I said this last week, that it's actually more honest, more academic, more intelligent of you and I to say that Jesus was the David Koresh of his day than to say that he was a good teacher and nothing more. That it's more honest, it's more academic, it's more intelligent of you and I to say that Jesus is the true father of lies, that he was the greatest liar to have ever walked the face of the planet than to say that he was a good teacher and nothing more. He's either a bold-faced liar, a raving lunatic, or the son of God. And so you and I must make our choice, and many of you in this room have already made your choice to submit to Jesus as king of the universe and, and with glad submission. Um, for those who are on the fence, my hope is that as you press into this series with us, that, that that myth that perhaps you've bought into, that lie that Jesus is nothing more than a good teacher, would be debunked for you, that you would begin to see that as foolish based on some of the things that Jesus actually said himself, and that you would be sensible enough to either call him a raving lunatic or the father of lies, or my hope, which is Lewis's hope, is that you would fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. And that for those professing Christians in the room, my hope is that you and I would submit ourselves more and more to all of Scripture, seeing it as our supreme authority, not just the parts that, that we like, um, that we would set our Sharpies aside, proverbially, and would begin to believe and trust in all that Jesus had to say, um, even the, the difficult things that came out of his mouth as we bend our knee in glad submission to our king. And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open to Luke chapter 6. That's where we'll be this morning. We'll be in verses 27 through 36. I believe that's on page 560 in the Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. So if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible with you as the church's gift to you for free. We want you to be the owner of a Bible and be exploring these things with us on your own time. Let me read this morning's passage, and we'll pray, and we'll just jump in, and we'll get to work. It says this in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 27. This is Jesus speaking. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. For you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Let's pray. God, this is one of the most impossible commands that you have given us. We are going to need a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in order for anything to come to fruition this morning. 
my prayer is that none of us would walk out saying, I don't have enemies. And that on the flip side, that none of us would say, I do, uh, but I'm not going to do anything about that. Um, I'm going to walk away understanding what it means theologically to love my enemies, but functionally, I'm not going to actually obey this command in bending my knee to King Jesus. I pray that neither of those things would happen for us, that you would etch names and faces on our minds and on our hearts that we could not escape in the coming weeks, and that we would gladly submit ourselves to you in loving our enemies, whatever that may look like based on our particular situations, circumstances. So would you do that, Holy Spirit, uh, the thing that only you can do um, in your power? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I just laid my cards out on the table. Um, I think that this is an impossible text. I believe that apart from a miracle of God, and I'm talking on the level of healing the blind, talking on the level of raising dead men to life, things that we see in the ministry and life of Jesus, that without a miracle, nothing's going to come to fruition. Nothing's going to happen as we leave this place. We're going to go, yeah, I understand Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36 a little bit better. Hey, if anybody wants to know how to love their enemies, I can teach you how to do that. But we're not actually going to walk out and begin to, to do that by the power of the Spirit ourselves. And so my hope my prayer, what I'm praying for you, for me this morning, is that a miracle would happen. That's my own disposition to push against this, to just kind of let it go in one ear and out the other, maybe settle theologically but not functionally at a heart level. Um, my prayer is that uh, God would indeed etch on your mind and on your heart names and faces. And I'm even going to leave some weird, awkward, silent space this morning for us to think about that, even in the midst of the sermon where awkward silences are typically not accepted, and we'll get there soon enough. But I really hope that as a result of this morning, that we become a church that's known for our love, and not just the love of people who are easy to love, but for the most unlovable, because we've been loved by God as the most unlovable people, former enemies of his. And so let me lay out a little bit of a roadmap for us. Do this from time to time. It makes sense to do it this morning. And so here's where we're going. We're going to answer four questions that come out of this text this morning. The who, the what, the why, and the how. So number one, who are your enemies? At the end of the day, who are we talking about? We need to comprise a list here so that we know what we're looking at in terms of how to respond properly. Secondly, what defines loving your enemies? What is, what is Jesus actually calling us to do? Is it uh, simply uh, a head thing? Uh, are we to engage our hearts? Is it a matter of the will? What are, we, what are we called to do here? Thirdly, why does Jesus say this? Um, could he not have left this one out and maybe incorporated something else in its place that would have been more helpful to us? Or maybe just left it out altogether to shorten our Bibles, which are pretty thick in the first place? And then lastly, how can we possibly live this out? How do we do this? This seems absolutely impossible. And so let's jump into question one, just work our way through these four, and hopefully God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, as we've asked, will do a miracle in my life and in your life. Who are your enemies? If you look at this passage, um, Jesus gives us a pretty broad scope when it comes to defining our enemies. So in context, if you go back to uh, the verse prior to this passage, uh, verse 26, Jesus is pronouncing woes, and he says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets, that um, it's possible to not have enemies because you're not actually living out the truth of the gospel in such a way that people experience great hostility when they see the cross of Christ as a stumbling block 
in their life. And so much of what Jesus unpacks for us in these verses could be connected to simply living out a life that makes much of Jesus Christ as the risen Son of God. So we could be talking about persecution, about things like uh, that would fall into the category of martyrdom, um, living for Jesus, and, and experiencing great hostility, great persecution. But I would go even further and say that if Jesus expects you to love those who would drive six-inch nails through your wrists, then he expects you to follow the command to the extent of loving those who get your Starbucks order wrong. Or the coworker that you just can't seem to get along with that just keeps to, uh, since tends to keep nagging you or using you as a stepping stone to make themselves look great. Whatever that may look like, we'll unpack that momentarily. But if Jesus would call us to love those who would physically nail us to a piece of wood, then I think he's calling us to love those who would do far less um, that would function in hostile ways towards us and may uh, take on the the title of enemy. So let's look at this passage a little bit to answer the question, who are your enemies? And I think this passage does lay out a very broad scope. Number one, your enemies, verse 27, are those who hate you, those who detest you, those who think the world would be a better place if you weren't a character in the story. Who comes to mind? Do you, do you know these people? Do you have people like this in your life who, at the end of the day, they just really do detest you? They really hate you. They, they wish that uh, you weren't a part of their story, or maybe we're a little bit further out on the peripheral edges of their story. Perhaps that's how God would fill in the blank and etch names and faces on your mind and your heart this morning through verse 27. Your enemies, verse 28, are those who curse you as well. So we're talking people who verbally wish for your ill for your demise. This might be a helpful way to think of it. It's the opposite of a benediction. So at the end of this service today, as we do every week, I'm going to say something to the effect of, may God by his grace, and then fill in the blank with whatever that is. Pronouncing a blessing, asking God to bless this church as we leave this place in some way. Now imagine the reversal of that. If, if as we got done this morning, I said, may God remove his grace from your life May he completely curse your week and destroy any hope that you had of joy this week. Imagine that I said something like that and spoke that over our lives this morning. You'd go, seriously, I'm not coming back. You're crazy. And yet there are people who say things like that, maybe not to your face, but when you're out of the room, people who say, you know, at the end of the day, I'd be completely fine if something, you know, such and such fill in the blank happened to them. Um, something that, that there's a wishing for verbally of, of ill or demise. Maybe that's where God fills up your, your list, etches those names and faces onto your mind and heart. Verse 28 goes on to say that your enemies are those who abuse you. The word abuse here has a, a number of possible meanings. It can mean anything from being insulted, having your reputation smeared, to literally being molested, and anything in between. It's a junk drawer term for being mistreated. So have you ever felt mistreated by someone? Maybe this week you felt mistreated by someone. Maybe even it comes as close to home as your own spouse, your own kids. What does that look like? Maybe that's where God wants to fill in the blank and etch some names and faces on your mind, on your heart this morning. Verse 29, he goes on to say, your enemies are those who strike you on the cheek. If we're talking about a closed fist, then this is the language of violence, of bullying, those who bully you those who, who, who step on you, for lack of better terms, on their way towards making themselves 
look great. If it's an open fist, this is the language of insult. A closed fist is meant for violence. An open fist is meant to demean, right? There's nothing more demeaning than being slapped in the face. That is one of the most demeaning things that you can be on the receiving end of. That according to verse 29, your enemy is anyone who bullies you or anyone who demeans you. Okay, at this point, there should be very few of us in the room that can't fill in the blank with at least one name, with at least one face. Jesus goes on to say, verses 29 and 30, your enemies are those who take away your cloak, those who take away your goods, those who are always taking from you, those who are always taking advantage of you, those who are always emptying you and never filling you up. You know those people, they're like leeches, they're bottom feeders in your life, and at the end of the day, you'd just rather turn and run the other way every time you see them coming because you know they're just going to sap you dry. Maybe that's the name and the face on the list that God would put before you this morning at a mind and heart level. And then lastly, verse 30, your enemies are those who beg from you, those who are always nagging you for something, those who never leave you alone, those who are always inconveniencing you, those who are always threatening your comfort idol, you might say. So when you think in terms of enemies, think of everyone on the spectrum from those who hate you who bully you, who curse you, to those who mistreat you, who insult you, and who nag you, right? We should all at this point be able to come up with a few names. And in fact, here's what I want to do. God's providentially kind. He just let the air conditioner cut on so it's not super awkward silence. But for the next 30 to 60 seconds, I, I want us to just stop, close our eyes, bow our heads, and ask God, give me a name. That's a way of submitting to the king this morning. Ask God, give me a name and give me a face. Can we do that for just a second? Like literally shut our eyes, bow our heads. I'm not going to say anything for 30 seconds. And you ask God, who's my enemy this morning? All right, hopefully many of us in the room, God did something there. We don't do that every week, just so you know, if you're a newcomer, we don't have awkward silences every week. That's going to be super awkward for someone who missed this service and listens to a podcast. They're going to try to fast forward and try to figure out where does he pick back up. Um, but I, I don't think we can move forward into question number two without answering question number one. If, you don't, if you're not able to assess who would be on that list for you, then everything we're about to talk about has no purpose, no meaning behind it. So hopefully God's revealing to you, even right now, who that person would be that would function as, uh, in Jesus' language, as an enemy. So with that question being answered, and at a very surface level, I would say, moving on to question number two, what defines loving your enemies? What, what does it look like for you to love the person that by God's grace perhaps he just laid on your mind and on your heart, that he just etched into your mind and your heart. What, what is Jesus calling us to? Um, there are four Greek words for love, 
And I would encourage you actually to read C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves sometime in the near future. If you've never read that book, he unpacks these four Greek terms for love. What Jesus is not commanding us to is storge, which is the Greek word that means natural affection, the kind of affection that a mother has for a child or a child for a mother. Jesus is not talking about that kind of natural affection. Jesus is not talking about philia, which is brotherly love. It's where we get the, the name of the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, the love between friends. That's not the kind of love Jesus is talking about here. That love is natural as well. Jesus is not commanding eros love or romantic type of love for your enemies. That love is fairly natural as well. What Jesus is commanding, and many of you are familiar with this terminology in the Bible Belt, is agape love, unconditional love, love extended without merit, love regardless of circumstance. That to be sure, Jesus is commanding us to the most unnatural form of love that you could possibly imagine. And so I want to unpack what that looks like because I think the rest of this passage gives us a good indication of what this unnatural agape type of love really looks like at the end of the day. So let me just run through this list. We have a slide up on the screen for you to kind of follow along. Number one, agape love involves unnatural actions. Verse 27, Jesus says, do good to those who hate you. So think of someone who hates you, someone who detests you. Maybe that was the person that God put on your mind as we sat in silence just a moment ago. Get a picture of that person in your mind. And now think of what it would be like to do, to actively do something commendable to that person, something honorable to that person, something advantageous to or for that person. Maybe it's baking cookies for the neighbor that hates your guts because there are always dandelions in your yard. Maybe it's buying lunch for the, the coworker uh, that thinks the workplace would be better off if you weren't a part of it. Maybe it's meeting the tangible need of someone in your so, social circle, circle who likes your friends but doesn't like you. I don't know what that looks like for you, but when, when we put it into that perspective, it's incredibly unnatural, right? It's very unnatural to take active steps towards someone who detests you and to do something commendable to or for them. But we're not just talking unnatural actions. We're also talking unnatural words. This is crazy. Verse 28, bless those who curse you. Okay, so think of someone who has verbally condemned you with their words. Someone who has verbally wished for your ill or your demise, whether they said it to your face or, or they've said it behind your back and it's come back around to you. Someone who you're naturally inclined to speak poorly of. All right, now think of what it would be like to eulogize that person. Right? The word translated bless here is the, the Greek word eulageo. It, it literally means to bless in the way that we bless, we speak well of someone at a funeral. So think of what it would be like to speak of that person who wishes for your ill, for your demise, as you would a loved one at a funeral. Doesn't get any more unnatural than that, right? Jesus goes on to say not just unnatural actions and words, but unnatural prayers. Again, this is a junk drawer term as we look at verse 28. Pray for those who abuse you. This word abuse is a junk drawer term for being mistreated in any way. Think of someone who's mistreated you. Many of us in the room, as we sat in silence, this is probably the category that we sifted things out with respect to. This can be anyone from the 
the random guy who flicked you off in traffic the other day, to the family member who lashed out at you even as recently as the last couple days, to the friend who said something hurtful either to your face or behind your back, to the person responsible for physical or sexual abuse being a part of your story. All of that goes into the junk drawer of being abused, being mistreated. Now, think of what it would be like, and this is insane. This is where Jesus just really does get crazy. Think of what it would be like to carve out some time this week to fall on your knees and pray for that person. To lift that person up to the God of the universe and plead with God on their behalf that God would save them, that God would heal them, that God would free them, that God would smile upon them. And I'm not talking from a vantage point of our self-righteousness like, I'm so great and good. If this person could just be more like me, then things would be so much better. But rather to come from a vantage point of brokenness and humility and say, please, God, please work in their lives for your glory and for their joy. This is unbelievably unnatural. Something strange happens when you do that in most cases. For most of us, it's really hard to fall on your knees and truly pray for someone and hate them at the same time. That's a really difficult thing to to do. Unbelievably unnatural, yet this is what Jesus commands us to. And lastly, not just unnatural actions, not just unnatural words, not just unnatural prayers, but unnatural responses. Look at verses 29 through 31. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. The, the ancient Hebrews adhered to what's known as the lex talionis. It's the law of retaliation. It's the Old Testament language of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. When most of us hear that kind of language, it comes across as very harsh to us, right? However, what we fail to realize is that it's incredibly kind, it's incredibly fair compared to our typical response when we're mistreated, is it not? Guy cuts you off in traffic or blazes past you going 90 miles an hour, and all of a sudden you're wishing that he totals his vehicle. As if that's a fair trade for the guy blazing past you on the interstate is that he ruins his possessions and faces near death, if not actually experiences death, because he drove past you going a little too fast. Or how about the girl working the drive-thru who, who gets your order wrong, and all of a sudden you're perfectly content with her losing her job and never getting another gig in town? Because that's a fair trade for giving you whipped cream when you ask for no whip. The Old Testament people of God, with their eye-for-an-eye language, were much more gracious than we tend to be. Our human nature, we become the queen of hearts. Off with their heads! That becomes our cry. No matter what happens on any given level in which we're mistreated. And then along comes Jesus calling for something even more difficult than an eye for an eye. Something far more unnatural. Jesus says, trade your vengeful attitude, your retaliatory attitude for a generous giving, loving attitude and disposition directed toward those who really, at the end of the day, may actually deserve vengeance and retaliation. It'd be much easier if Jesus had said, do unto others as they do unto you. That's eye for an eye language, right? But what Jesus says is this, completely set aside how you are treated, 
Think about how you'd like to be treated and treat others that way. This goes against every natural bone in the human body and soul. I mean, how many married people in the room operate this way with your spouses? Think about it for a second. Wives, if your husband's treating you like the gum on the bottom of his shoe today, and let's be honest, some of you are experiencing that right now, how natural would it be for you to decide he's treating me like used gum, but what I'd like is for him to treat me like a princess, so I'm going to treat him like a prince today. And all the women said, dream on, brother, right? Or husbands, if your wife is the Proverbs wife and not the good one in chapter 31, but the quarrelsome, nagging one that sounds like a continual dripping of rain, a leaky faucet that you can't seem to turn off, how natural would it be for you to decide she never stops nagging, but what I'd like is to be treated with some respect. So though she's constantly nagging me in a disrespectful way, I'm going to treat her with dignity and respect today. No chance, right, fellas? This is completely unnatural, what Jesus is calling us to. Every bone in our body wants to fight against this command to actually obey it. Jesus goes on to say in verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. That's lex talionis. That's eye for an eye stuff. Verse 33, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. That's lex talionis. That's eye for an eye stuff. Verse 34, if you lend to those whom you respect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. That's lex talionis. That's eye for an eye stuff. Jesus says, I'm calling you to something far more unnatural than that eye for an eye stuff. Verse 35, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. All right, that leads me to my third question, which surely most of us are asking at this point. Why in the world would Jesus say this? Our Bibles are thick enough, right? We could kind of just weed out a few verses, thin this thing up a little bit. Maybe more people would read their Bibles or maybe replace it with something a little bit less unnatural. What is Jesus doing here? Why is he driving at this particular command? Well, very simply put, and my answer is not going to suffice for some in the room, Jesus cares about you too much to exclude these words. Because, you see, if you're a Christian, Jesus is committed to conforming you into his image, to making you like him, and Jesus loves his enemies. Jesus was slapped by his enemies and he didn't retaliate. Jesus had his clothes taken from him, stripped naked before the masses, and he didn't respond with hate. Jesus was used and abused by practically everyone he came in contact with for the three years of his ministry, and he responded with generosity, kindness, and grace. I mean, for crying out loud, he asked the Father to forgive those who drove the nails into his wrists and feet. That's unnatural. To love your enemies is to be like Jesus. Jesus didn't save you only to then leave you as you are for the remainder of your days. He loves you too much to leave you like you are. That according to Romans 8, if you're a Christian, you're being conformed into the image of the Son of God. And Jesus loves his enemies. And the encouraging thing is that for the Christian, God doesn't call us to anything that he hasn't done himself. That's good news. The question is, do you want to be conformed to the image of the king? Right? This is where I come back around. I do this a lot. I come back around to 
the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe story, and I asked myself, would I want to be like Aslan? Like, when I see Aslan, do I want to be like the great Lion King? Do I really desire that? That helps me because getting a picture of King Jesus on his throne sometimes is really hard for me. If you see Jesus as nothing more than a moral teacher, as a good philosopher, you'll go, I want to be like Jesus until he asks things that are just simply too hard for me to respond to in obedience. And so you'll begin to tear out certain pages of the scripture, maybe not literally, but metaphorically, as you conform Jesus into your image, because that's much easier than having him chisel away the the corners in shaping you into his image. But if you see Jesus as the good, conquering, risen king of the universe, then at the end of the day, your desire will be to become more like Jesus. And Jesus truly loves his enemies. So the question really does become, do you want to be like Jesus at the end of the day? Or do you want Jesus to become like you? For those who want to be conformed into the image of their good king, the question left that we have to answer is this, how? I mean, how, how do we do this? This is completely unnatural. So are there any practical steps that we can take to attempt to make what is completely unnatural, maybe a little bit more natural, in some way, by the power of the Holy Spirit supernaturally? And I think the answer is yes. I I really do think there are three things that we can do to actually practically and functionally live this out, that you can go out and whatever that person, that name or that face that God etched on your mind and on your heart this morning, that you can actually leave this place and begin to implement some of these very practical things, that you can get on your knees and pray for them this week, that you can seek to actively do good to them and for them, that you can eulogize that person or those people, that these are things you can actually do, and here's how I think that happens. Number one, by preaching the gospel to ourselves, by remembering often that you and I were enemies of God whom he loved in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That it wasn't just the Roman soldiers that nailed Jesus to the cross. Your sin nailed him there. My sin nailed him there. We stripped him naked and struck him. We sought to take from him, namely his glory for ourselves. And we still do that. We still function as glory thieves, even us Christians in the room, focused on making our name great, building our kingdom rather than being about building his kingdom. We still constantly beg, us, uh, beg him to give us things that we want more than him, asking him to write the check for our idols. Jesus didn't die for you and I because we were such good friends to him. Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies of the cross of Christ, participants in his wounds. Verse 35 says this, even now God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. If we have enough self-awareness to understand, to acknowledge that we were once enemies of God, that we still live much of life ungrateful to God for who he is and for what he's done for us, then the fact that he's kind, that he's merciful toward us, should compel us to then live mercifully with kindness toward uh, those that are very difficult to love. That's the point of verse 36. Verse 36 says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. That his mercy toward us compels our mercy toward others. 
that his love toward us, right in the middle of our selfishness, right in the middle of our coldness, right in the middle of our hostility, right in the middle of our rebellion, compels our loves towards others, right in the midst of their hostility and coldness toward us. You might say it this way. If you're not a very merciful person, if you're not a very loving person toward your enemies, you're likely not preaching the gospel to yourself. Think of it this way. That there was a gap between you and God that was of cosmic proportion, right? And while you were acting as an enemy of God, he crossed that cosmic gap and loved you and adopted you into his family. He turned you from an enemy into a friend of God. God's crossing of that cosmic gap between his holiness and your hostility now frees you to cross a much smaller gap between you and others, to love them when they're most hostile toward you. If you struggle to love your enemies, it's likely due to the fact that, and this is very real in the Bible Belt, the land of self-righteousness, it's very likely that you see the gap between your loveliness and their unloveliness as being of cosmic proportion, and you've forgotten that the only gap of cosmic proportion is the one God crossed to save unlovely you and me. If you get that, the gap becomes much smaller between you and your enemies. The problem for many of us is not that our enemies are too difficult to love. That, that really is not the problem. The problem is that we've forgotten that we're impossible to love and yet loved immeasurably by God. That he's calling us to this impossible declaration this morning. Christ loved the unlovely, the unlovable in loving me, his enemy. So I'm compelled to love the most unlovable of my enemies in response to his grace and mercy and love toward me. That that kind of declaration, that kind of love directed toward your enemies proves that you're a recipient of the love of God toward you his former enemy, that you're, as verse 35 says, sons, daughters of the Most High, that the horizontal, horizontal relationships between us and others flow directly from the vertical relationship between us and God and how we understand how God has responded to us through the gospel. So preaching the gospel to yourself regularly really does matter. That the gospel is not the highway, uh, the entry ramp onto the highway of Christianity that you then leave behind in the rearview mirror for bigger and better things as you build a more robust theology and begin to set up your list of boxes to check in terms of the do's and don'ts of the new Christian life. But the gospel is something you preach to yourself often, regularly. It's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, let me remind you, brothers, of that which is of first importance. And what does Paul go on to say? He doesn't jump into a systematic theology session. He says, Christ died for you. He was buried and he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. That's simple gospel truth, right? But we, we tend to have gospel drift. We tend to forget the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, which compels everything that we then do in living in obedience to the king. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves, reminding ourselves that we were former enemies redeemed by God's grace as he extended mercy and love toward us. Secondly, this is a very practical one. This is huge. This happens, loving our enemies, by establishing a vision for them. All right. Every time I pass that giant plot of dirt across from five guys on 54 heading towards Noonan, I start dreaming. I don't know what you do. Um, some of you in the room, you look at it and you go, that's a plot of dirt. I don't really see anything more than that, and I wish they'd turn it into something other than a plot of dirt because it's getting really old to look at. But for me, every time I pass that plot of dirt, I start thinking, what could that be? 
Uh, let's see. Favorite Orlando restaurant before we move, Jimmy Hula's. That'd be sweet if that was a Jimmy Hula's. That'd be really cool. Bonefish Grill, my wife loves that restaurant. That's her favorite. Be sweet if they just dropped a Bonefish Grill into Peachtree City. Date nights on birthdays and anniversaries would be really easy for me then. We literally drive six minutes from our front door, and we can do that thing rather than driving all the way to the other side of Atlanta. I start dreaming. I start thinking, what, what, do you, what, what could this be beyond what it is? Most of us, when it comes to people, we can't get past the is to the what could be. That's oftentimes our problem. We, we can't see past who a person is and start dreaming of who they could be by God's grace. Think of it this way. That person who hates you, that person who detests you, that God is etching on your mind and your heart even now this morning by God's grace, could one day be a community group leader with our church. That person who mistreats you by God's grace, could one day become an advocate for the abused and the mistreated. That person who always wants to take from you, by God's grace, could become one of the most generous supporters of our church and our mission to reach this city and beyond with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our vision is way too small, oftentimes, especially when it comes to our enemies. What if we began to dream past the plot of dirt that we see when we look at our enemies? And could begin to dream by God's grace of what God could do in their lives and, and catch that vision and then help to make that vision a reality by stepping out in the most unnatural way that God's calling us to in this agape love response. Maybe this morning you ask God to give you a vision for that person that you detest the most in this world because they detested you first. And then lastly, thirdly, very practically, I think we get there. We can live this out. We can love our enemies by, number three, setting our sights on our reward, by believing that the eternal reward is greater than the temporal loss. Verse 35 says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. That... If we ask the question, why does it bother you and I so much to be hated, to be insulted by others? Because if we're honest, we treasure man's approval more than our eternal reward of God's love and approval. We're, we're focused on the temporal and we've missed the eternal. That the hate of others directed toward you and I is far less devastating when you and I believe that we're truly approved of completely and perfectly in Christ Jesus. Why does it bother you and I so much to be cursed by others when people speak ill of us? Because if we're honest, we treasure what others say about us more than we treasure what God says about us. That the curses of man are far less devastating when you hear God saying to you, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. If you're a Christian, God speaks that over your life. Why does it bother you and I to have people constantly beg and take from us? Because if we're honest, we don't truly believe that we are eternally rich in Jesus Christ. And so any threat to our money, any threat to our comfort, any threat to our time is a threat to the kingdom that we're building for ourselves. Having people nag and take from you and I is far less devastating if we realize that we are co-heirs with Christ that we get to be about his kingdom. And so it matters far less when people get in the way of our building of our kingdom. Why does it bother you and I to be disrespected by others? 
Because if we're honest, we need to be treated with respect in order to feel like dignified human beings. Being disrespected by others is far less devastating when you realize that you're an image bearer of God and the fractured image has been restored in Christ. That God has bestowed you with dignity as his child and that frees you from clawing after the respect of others so that you can love those who disrespect you. If we can wrap our minds and our hearts around the reality that the eternal reward is far greater than the temporal loss inflicted upon us by our enemies, we have a real shot of loving those that seem like they're most impossible to love. In a moment, we're going to take communion. And this meal is for Christians in the room. It's a collective proclamation for us who know and love and follow Jesus of who he is and what he's done for us. We take communion here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian... um, As we prepare to take communion this morning, let me come back to some things that we've talked about and and just have you sit with these questions as you prepare your hearts. Number one, based on this passage, who are your enemies? Are you you there yet? Have you you got some names and faces etched in your mind and, and on your heart? If not, spend this time as we prepare for communion asking God to do so. If that 60 seconds of silence wasn't enough, who are those who hate you? Who are those who speak poorly of you? Who are those who mistreat you, those who insult you, those who are always taking from you, those who are always nagging you? If you don't wrestle with that question, you won't be able to respond to anything else that we've taken a look at this morning out of this passage. We all have enemies. Who makes, who makes it onto your list? Secondly, what unnatural step of agape love are you going to take in obedience to King Jesus this morning. Again, I I don't want us to sit in in the land of the theoretical here. I don't want us to sit in the theological ivory tower and walk away and go, okay, I understand more so what loving my enemies means. It's one of those four loves. It's the agape one, and I understand what that means now. It's unnatural. So now I can teach anybody who wants to know more about love when it comes to the way it's unpacked in the Greek That would be an epic fail. But rather, what we want to do is walk out of this place and begin to live this out by the power of the Holy Spirit, by God's grace. What does that look like for you? Perhaps God is is calling you to an unnatural action, an unnatural deed of love toward whoever that person is on your list. Maybe it's not an action, but maybe it's the way you speak of that person this week when you're around others and that person's name comes up in conversation. Maybe it's legitimately carving out some time, pulling out your calendar as we sing this next song and blocking out a space to get on your knees and pray for that person and not from a vantage point of self-righteousness but from a vantage point of brokenness. Number three, what would it look like for you and I to live out the golden rule this week? To do unto others not as they do unto you but as you'd like for them to do unto you. To set aside that eye for an eye stuff and respond in the way that we'd like to be treated rather than the way that we are? What would it look like for you to respect the person who's disrespecting you? What would it look like for you to extend love to those who are insulting or mistreating you this week? Can you begin to see that if we actually live this out, what kind of missional thing would begin to happen through this church in this city if we actually believed this and functionally began to live this by the power of God's Spirit and by His grace? Number four, uh, and this is perhaps the most crucial question of all, 
do you really want to be conformed more and more into the image of Jesus? Do you really want him to chisel away even the things that just are the most painful as he just kind of digs under the skin and, and just gets out all the cancerous stuff so that he can heal you and conform you more and more into his image? Do you really want that? Number five, how can you implement a rhythm of preaching the gospel to yourself? This is such a crucial one, of reminding yourself often of the mercy of God extended toward you, his former enemy, that you'll never extend love to your enemies if you're not preaching the gospel to yourself. And lastly, what might it look like for you to establish a vision for your enemies? This week, to begin to move past the the proverbial plot of dirt to dream of what God could do in their lives and how he could even use you to see that happen. If you're not a Christian, my prayer for you this morning is this, that you'd come face-to-face very simply with Romans 5.10, which says that you're an enemy of God, and that you would realize that the gap between you and God is of cosmic proportion. It's of epic proportion, that there's nothing you can do to bridge that gap on your own, and that you would look to Jesus, who became an enemy of God on the cross so that you could become a friend of God and that you would put your faith in Jesus and be reconciled to God this very day. And that in doing so, you'd experience the immeasurable, lavish love of God that flows from the cross of Christ this morning. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us Find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.